Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, page 1187 in those pew Bibles. We are continuing this morning on a series on the church. We have uh, some number of messages, at least uh, conceptually thought through with regard to the topic of the church that will take us uh, through the summer the plan after that to uh, exposit the book of Romans. But for now, let's give our attention to the topic of the church. And these early on messages will deal with leadership within the church because that is such a crucial issue. All around us, the church is in trouble in so many ways and places. And part of that is clearly has to do with a crisis of leadership. I've been a follower of Jesus Christ almost 30 years now, and in those 30 years, I have seen many, many invalid reasons for elevating a man into a position of leadership within the church. Things such as educational achievement, certain level of degrees as a means by which one is elevated. Others, their business acumen, if they are successful businessmen, then the reasoning goes that they will clearly be good leaders within the church of Jesus Christ. Others are elevated on the basis of their personality. They're just likable people, and so they naturally are thought to have leadership gifts. Some are what I call generosity. They are the big givers within the church, and so if one is a big giver, then The reasoning goes that automatically they ought to be in leadership. For others, it is what I'm calling homesteaders. That is, that they have been around for such a long time that they clearly should be leaders within the body. For others, it's the force of their personality. They are just a forceful person. And so the thought process there is is rather than oppose them, it's easier to just install them into leadership and then there are less arguments along the way. Others, it's pure politics, right? They're part of the in crowd. For others, it's personal favoritism. They're the friend of the pastor or some other influential leader in the church, and that is their doorway into the leadership. For others, it's their Bible knowledge. You know, they're the Bible answer man, and so clearly then they ought to be leaders of the church. They know the Bible so well. For others, it's perhaps their teaching gifts. They're just excellent Bible teachers, and then so clearly they ought to be leaders of the church. They're such good Bible teachers. For others, it's kind of a reward for faithful service. You know, you do this and this and this, and eventually you'll get a promotion, and you'll end up being an elder in the church. But beloved, all of these are inadequate Some of them are downright sinful reasons to elevate someone into the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. The scriptures are very, very clear as to what are the criteria for the leadership of God's church. And they are found for us most succinctly here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read, please. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We began this section last week with a rather lengthy introduction. Just kind of looking at the first verse here and the and what Paul lays as a foundation. We didn't even get into the qualifications. We will begin to get into them this morning. But Paul, and by way of review for you here, Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. This is something you can go to the bank on. When someone, a man, aspires to the office of overseer, it is a good thing. It is a fine work that he desires to do. It is a noble thing to aspire to leadership within the church of Jesus Christ, provided the aspiration comes along biblical lines. It is a good thing. And young men this morning as we're preaching, this is not an old man's message. This is very much a young man's message. Because it is something for which God can put aspirations into your hearts even now. So that you might make life decisions that will qualify you and equip you. So that when the proper time comes in your life that you too can serve Jesus Christ in the high and holy and noble task of church leadership. And so this is not just a message for middle-aged men. This is a message for young men. This is a message for young ladies. As you look and seek marriage partners in life, this would be a great way, a good checklist for you to go down and begin to evaluate that future mate, that potential life partner. And for you ladies who are married as well, this would be something that you can pray for and encourage even your own husbands towards. This message has application across the whole church. It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine Fine work he desires to do. Last time we spent some time establishing the basis of uh, the fact that it is a male office, the office of elder or overseer. I'm not going to go back and and, uh, redo all of that. You can get the message and uh, listen to it yourself. But a question did come up afterwards that I thought I probably should come around to and answer. And when I said that the, uh, the teaching office of the church, the elder's office, was restricted to men... And it was not based on giftedness vis-a-vis a woman. It wasn't a question of a man being more gifted than a woman and because that would presuppose what happens to a very gifted lady as a Bible teacher. Where does she fulfill her teaching gifts? What is her outlet for the spiritual giftedness that God has given her? And the answer to that is in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. You can just note that. We won't turn there. But there it speaks about the role of instruction for a woman who is a talented and gifted teacher. It is a very fine work, again, verse 1, that a man aspire to the office of leader, the church of God. Now, verse 2. It says an overseer, that is an elder or a bishop, must be above reproach. You see that? 
That is an umbrella statement. That is an overarching statement that, that sits like an umbrella across the whole passage. And it is important that we understand the significance of that statement because in reality what follows it is a fleshing out of that short but powerful statement. An overseer then must, it says. The verb is day in the Greek and it means it is necessity or it is under compulsion. The idea is it is non-negotiable that an elder within the church of Jesus Christ absolutely, positively, without exception, must be above reproach. That's what it says. This verb, day, by the way, controls the whole context of this passage. It's used again down in verse 7. Let your eyes skip down there. And it says, he must have a good reputation. Do you see that? It is a repetition of the same verb and it is continuing the thought that this is not negotiable. This is absolutely necessary. It appears also in verse 8. Now, in the New American Standard, it appears in italics because that's true. It is not, it is not there in the, in the text, but it is there by implication from what goes before. Where there it says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. It also appears down in verse 11 where it speaks of women. They must likewise be dignified. So this verb day is flowing through this whole text, appearing in verse 1 and verse 7, and by implication, verse 8 and 11. It flows all the way through the passage, and it tells you that what is given here is a non-negotiable. Last time we looked and let our eyes drop again this morning down to verse 15, and we noted that this is a context statement that sets the, the whole context for what's going on here. Paul says, I want to come to you. I'm hoping to come, but in case I'm delayed, verse 15, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul says, I'm coming, I hope to come. If I come, I'll give you instruction. But until I get there, let me write to you a few very important things, a few must-haves, a few non-negotiables, particularly when it deals with leadership as it does here in chapter 3. So, an elder must be above reproach, it says. Literally, not to be laid hold of. That's what the Greek word means, not to be laid hold. Hold of. It is a general requirement. As I said, it's, a, it's an umbrella statement that sits over the whole passage. There are detailed qualifications that flesh out what it means to be above reproach. We'll begin to look at those here in just a moment or two. But the umbrella statement, the broad statement, is that he must be literally not one to be laid hold of. No hooks in his life would be another way to say it. His life outwardly and inwardly must be of such a level that the enemy cannot hook anything onto him. No accusation will stick to him. Spiritually, he is Teflon-coated, if you like. And we see that, uh, the implication of that over in chapter 5, by the way. Just go ahead and take a look there. Chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 5 19 speaks of the protections that come to an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. And the protection that is given there in verse 19 of chapter 5, Paul says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. What does he mean? What he means is that when someone comes and grumbles about an elder and accuses an elder of misbehavior or wrongdoing, the Apostle Paul says, you are not to receive it. You're not even to listen to it 
unless it is substantiated by two or three first-hand witnesses. Why? Why is that so? The answer is, is because of his sterling character as laid out here in chapter 3. It is because this man is above reproach. When he was installed into the office of elder of the church, his life was thoroughly examined and scrutinized against the Scripture, and he came out you know, with passing grades. He came out with flying colors. Therefore, that is the character of the man that is living leadership in the church or men that are giving leadership in the church. And therefore, when someone comes and speaks against them by way of accusation, and if it is unsubstantiated, it is to be ignored. It is to be ignored. And the reason is because of his sterling character. Now, let me quickly hesitate or hasten to say here that we are not talking about spiritual perfection. If we are talking about spiritual perfection, then there would be no elders of the church of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the, uh, the only one who would be leadership of the church would be Christ himself, right? Even the apostles would not be able to give leadership for they were not perfect. And so it is not perfection that is being talked about here. What is being spoken of is that there are no glaring weaknesses, no blatant contradictions between a man's life and his profession. The profession of his attachment and faith to Jesus Christ and the examination of his life have to be consistent. That's the point. You should be a model for what it means to follow Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 said, Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Don't just follow me, but as I am pursuing Christ, you pursue along with me. You may follow my lead. And so, clearly, those that are in the, in the role of elders of the church and those beginning in verse 8 and following who are in the role of deacons within the church, there is a sense in which you are a model, gentlemen, We are a model to the congregation. People ought to be able to point to our lives and our families and say, this is what a mature follower of Jesus Christ looks like. We should be able to stand up to the scrutiny of it all. What you see is what you get. Now, the apostle begins to give general groupings here, general groupings of what it means to be above reproach. And what I told you is that there are seven of them, seven general groupings. And we're going to begin to look at that first one this morning, and that is uh, his qualifications regarding his fitness, his fitness or his suitability to serve as a leader within the church of Jesus Christ. It begins here in verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. First measure of his above reproachness, is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. And immediately we now are launched into a most difficult clause of the Scriptures. So this morning, some some sermons are more uh, exhortive, some are more instructional. This morning it is more instructional. So what that means is you need to follow along. You've got to pay attention. If you are watching them roof the building or the house behind me, Okay, you will not follow along. Those of you in the balcony, I know it is tempting to watch them put shingles up there. Okay, but believe me, it goes on all the time and it's not that exciting. So pay attention, watch, listen and and and, uh, let your eyes be be in the scriptures 
so you can follow the argumentation here, okay? Because we are going to have to make some grammatical arguments, and we all know how much we like grammar. Now, there are four common interpretations of this clause, this expression, the husband of one wife. And so let's begin to look at them together and show you why the first three are not adequate interpretations and why the elders of Foothill Bible Church believe that the fourth is the best. So let me give them to you. Number one, common interpretation is that it is, Paul is saying that marriage is a requisite for eldership, that a man must be married. Okay, That's the, that is one common view. A husband of one wife means that a man must be married. And so according to this view, no one may serve as an elder or deacon within the church unless they are married. Others add on requirements of children. Not only must they be married, they must have children. They, they look down to uh, verse 4 where it talks about keeping his children under control with all dignity. And they say, okay, well, you've got to not only be married, you've got to have children. All right, so if you're not married and you don't have children, you cannot serve as an elder or deacon in the church of Jesus Christ. We don't believe that to be true. We don't believe that that is the best interpretation of this particular clause within this text. Now, there, it is appealing on its surface to, to say that about the, the office of eldership. There is something about marriage and the raising of children that is very tempering on a man. It is clearly a test of his leadership. It is a test of his ability to love sinners up close and personal. Okay? And, um, and for other sinners to love him up close and personal. So it is, a, it is on its surface, a, you know, it's an appealing kind of interpretation. But it just doesn't hold up. And it fails uh, because it contradicts Paul's clear statements over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're not going to turn there or we will, time will elude us. But verse 8 and verses 25 for, through 33, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about the issue of celibacy. And there he actually encourages celibacy. He said is is definitely something to be given serious consideration to because marriage can distract from service to the Lord. And so I think if the Apostle Paul is making that statement over there and then saying here that a, that a man has to be married in order to be a leader in the church, there is a contradiction that just doesn't fit well. And so we would disregard that first interpretation, which, by the way, it tends to be an older and more patristic interpretation. Secondly... Some would say that it means you can only have one wife in a lifetime. I don't know why. Well, anyway, one wife in a lifetime. So what this view says is that if that if you are in leadership, if you remarry after the death of a wife, that you can no longer you can no longer be or you cannot serve as a as an elder of the church. And the reason that, that people give is that because a second family will limit your effectiveness. It will, it will occupy too much of your time and attention and you will not be able to give the church um, the adequate attention that it deserves. Again, I think that this, uh, this view uh, falters on the rocks of other passages of Scripture. I don't believe it's what's being said here and it certainly goes against other things. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Apostle Paul says, "...the death of a spouse." Uh, severs the marriage relationship, and then a man is free to remarry only in the Lord. Furthermore, the very Greek expression itself, husband of one wife, does not say having had only one wife. That is a different Greek construction, different verb. So it doesn't say having had only one wife, nor does it say an elder must be married only once. That's not what the Greek says, and 
So therefore, I don't think you can enforce that point here without bitter contextual support. So third, and this view is probably one of the most common views today, particularly in conservative Bible-believing churches, and that is that this husband of one wife prohibits divorce. It prohibits divorce. What, it, what the, uh, those that interpret it this way say is that if a man is divorced, he is then disqualified to serve as an elder in the church. He may not be an elder. He may not be a deacon if there is divorce in his background. Some add on to that prohibition and they say that even if he is not divorced himself, if he marries a woman who has been divorced, then that disqualifies him. Others say that if he, he remarries himself after divorce, then that disqualifies him. So it's sort of anything having to do with divorce. If you touch anything with divorce, you're disqualified. And again, at first glance, that, that can be an appealing interpretation. It seems to be a very safe way to protect the purity of the church. Right? God hates divorce. He clearly says that. And it is never God's desire or will that someone be divorced. God does permit divorce, we believe, and that would be another sermon for another time in certain circumstances. But there is a sense in which for the leadership of the church, a no-divorce policy has a surface appeal to it. But the question you have to ask yourself is, is it firmly rooted in the text? Is that what it means, the husband of one wife? Is that what he is seeing? Now, if that is true, then, then if that's the right interpretation, then legitimately it's, it's only speaking about a man who remarries after divorce. Husband of one wife, right? It is not a statement about divorce. In fact, the word divorce does not appear in the context of 1 Timothy 3 at all. It has to be imported into the context. It is not there. It does not come from the text. It is brought into the text. So the text says nothing about divorce. Nor does it speak about the issue of a wife's prior marital status. None of those ideas are implicitly here. They have to be brought here from somewhere else. Second, the issue of the legitimacy of a, of a person's divorce has to be settled from other passages of Scripture. That's sort of a necessary conclusion. If, it's, if divorce is not here, if it's not being spoken of here, then necessarily if you're going to find out what the Bible teaches about divorce, you're not going to find it here. You've got to go somewhere else. And so whether a man is excluded from divorce at all or whether he is permitted to be divorced in certain circumstances, if he's permitted to remarry after divorce, so forth, that has to be settled in other passages of Scripture. The text here says nothing about divorce. And in fact, I think what Paul is talking about is way deeper and more significant than the issue of divorce. So hopefully that just perked up your ears. I think Paul's talking about something more important than divorce in this text. And what he is talking about is not a, a view of a man's prior life, but a, an, an, an evaluation of his present situation. All of these characteristics, as you look at them, speak not about the past, but about the present. They talk about a present evaluation of a man's life. And that, I believe, is what's going on here. It's not marital status. It's something even deeper. It's something more profound. In a sense, it's something even more serious. And that leads us to what we believe to be the fourth and correct interpretation of the expression, the husband of one wife. And we believe it means faithful to 
one's wife. Faithful to your wife. That's what's being talked about here. Fidelity is what is on display. The husband of one wife is a statement about fidelity. And in fact, we do not believe that the translation, the husband of one wife, is the best English rendering of the Greek expression underneath it. What the Greek literally says is mias gunakos andra, literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That translation, that literal translation of the Greek, emphasizes character. It speaks about a man's character. It asks and answers the question of, does he have eyes for only his wife? Are his eyes only for her? Is he mature and stable in his character in terms of other females? Is he a man whose eyes are for only one and not a man whose eyes are roving? Not a man whose heart is divided. Not a man whose heart has been given away or is being given away in many different directions. This interpretation, this literal rendering of the Greek, one woman man, as I say, moves the the discussion not from what happened in the past, but to what is going on right now, today in a man's life. What is his life like? Are his eyes for only one? Is his heart given to only one or is it up for grabs? What is he like right now when he's being considered for this important office? Now, Grammatically, you've got to stay with me on this now. Grammatically, let's work our way through this. The Greek word gune, or gune, it, it means wife or woman. It means wife or woman in the Greek, and it is the context determines which way it's translated. There is not a different Greek word for wife and a different Greek word for woman. It is the same word, gune. It means wife or woman, context ruling. Furthermore, the word translated husband or man is is aner, and it is also driven by context. There is not a separate word for a husband and for a man. So it is the context that controls the translation, whether it's wife or woman, man or husband. Beyond that, the 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 noun here, gunikos, all right, derived from the, from the noun gune, is in what's called the genitive case. I can already see your eyes rolling back in your heads here, okay? Hang with me on this one. It's in the genitive case. And what that means is its, it's grammatical role is to modify the other noun, Andre, that's, that's translated man. Okay? So it's a, it's a noun in the genitive case modifying another noun. So simply put, the clause reads, therefore, okay? Take a look back up to verse 2. Then or therefore, an elder must be a man. What kind of a man? A one-woman kind of a man. That's what's being asked and answered here. An elder must be a man. Well, what kind of a man must he be? He must be a one-woman kind of man. As I told you, these qualifications fill out, flesh out, what it means to be above reproach. To be above reproach is to be a one-woman man. Why is it so important that we correctly understand this expression? Why is that so significant to the health of the church of Jesus Christ? 
And beyond that, why does questions about a man's sexual fidelity determine whether he is above reproach or not? Why are we investigating these things? Why not just say if he's married, that's good enough? Why is it that we must pry deeper into his life than merely his marital status? Well, let me give you some reasons for that, okay? There are three reasons that I scratched out why this is such a huge and significant area of qualification. Number one, a man's fidelity, a man's one-womanness, if I can make that up, is a test of, what, of his fidelity. So that's the first reason. It tests his fidelity. Next to our commitment to Jesus Christ, gentlemen, the most serious commitment we will ever make is our marriage vow. We stand before God and a congregation of witnesses and we vow some very lofty things. Let me remind you, this is uh, <clears throat> sample wedding vows, by the way. And they go like this. I, man, take you, my wife, <coughs> to be my cherished wife. I promise you with all my heart to walk beside you in days of adversity and in days of great happiness. To work hard to provide an income for material needs. A shoulder to cry on and a heart that understands. I will rejoice with you in the good times and I will weep with you in the sad. I will create life with you in reverence. I commit to love you sacrificially and to grow with you in trust, share possessions, communicate openly and honestly with you. I will be the spiritual leader of our home. I will be faithful to you and you alone until Christ calls me home. And I will seek to create a climate where you can find refuge from fear and strength in, in a troubled world. I ask God's help in keeping this solemn vow. That is a marriage vow that a man stands before God and makes. And beloved, if he will not or cannot keep that vow, then he is not above reproach. His character has been smeared. And he has disqualified himself to serve in the position of leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. Why is it so significant that a man be a one-woman man? Because it tests his fidelity, his commitment to his word. Beyond that, it tests his passions, second reason. It tests his passions. He has to ask and answer himself a question, and that is, do I love Jesus Christ? Do I love Jesus Christ? And do I love Jesus Christ in, with such passion that I can and will say no to the temporal passions of life. To the illicit opportunities for pleasure that will come my way. Physically or visually. Am I so much in love with Jesus Christ. That as a consequence of that I will say no to all others. Regardless of the temptations they present to themselves. Test his passions. How committed is he to Christ? Third, it tests his leadership. It tests his leadership. Does he know how to get along in a very close and personal relationship with another person who is a sinner? Does he know how to do that? And 
Does he know how to love like Christ loves? Or is he always on the lookout for greener pastures? When it gets hard, when it gets difficult, is his eyes always looking for somewhere else to go where it looks better, more appealing, more enticing? That's the case. He's disqualified himself from leadership. Let me talk to the men here just for a minute. Brothers, um, illicit sex has a corrosive effect on your soul. It has a corrosive effect on your soul. It is deeply defiling. The Apostle Paul says that every other sin a man commits is outside of his body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Our sexuality is part of who we are. It is as much a part of us as our own soul. We are men. We are men. We are not created first and then become men. We are created as men. It is, it is, our sexuality is as much a part of us as our very soul. It is the fiber of our being. So to sin sexually is to sin against your own soul. To sin against your own soul. It will defile you. It will break you. It will crush you. It's huge. It bends your character. It distorts your judgment. It causes you to have a breach between you and your Lord. It takes away from you the ability to make wise judgments. A man caught in the grip of sexual sin has been so bent and twisted and defiled that they are no longer able to think godly. Their judgment has been impaired, and particularly it's been impaired as it comes regards to spiritual truth. How can you be a leadership in the or be in leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ when you are twisted at the very core of your being, because you have chosen that which is unavailable to you? It's huge. This is a huge issue. Young men, I speak to you in this because it is most serious for you. You can so bend your life at a young age that you will be forever disqualified. If it is your desire to walk for Jesus Christ, to live for Him, to serve in leadership of His church, make good decisions when you're young. Make good decisions. Do not allow the fleeting pleasures of illicit sexuality to so bend and distort and corrode your character that you are forever set aside. It's huge. I'm not saying it's unforgivable. It clearly is forgivable. The great king of Israel, David, committed a, the most defiling and disgusting of sins. Yet God forgave him. David is in glory. We will spend glory with him too. But David's kingdom was forever bent by his sin. The consequences came to him and to his house for generation upon generation. And he forever remains in the pages of Scripture as a forgiven adulterer. It's huge. It is absolutely huge. You must walk in purity of heart and mind. Very serious. Very, very serious. And I know that some of you men are having trouble in this area. I know some personally 
that are having trouble. Others I'm aware of only statistically. We live in a cesspool. It's everywhere. It's coming at you. Sex sells and Hollywood or uh, Madison Avenue knows it and they use it. Every direction you turn, you live in a gutter. But believe me, it's no worse than it was in Ephesus when Paul wrote to Timothy. It's no worse than it was in Corinth for the church established there when to Corinthianize meant of sexual debauchery. We don't live in a worse time than they do. We're called to the same standards of purity that they are called to. This is huge. You're having problems in this area. You are now disqualified from the leadership of God's church. Depending how deeply rooted this sin is and how much it's bent and twisted, you may be permanently so. For others, there's hope. There's hope for all to be free from it. Right? The grace of God can free us from sin. Amen? But you better do something about it. It's wrecking your life. It's wrecking your marriage. It's wrecking your fellowship with your Lord. You're living in a cesspool. You're drinking garbage. You're polluting your own soul. Deal with it. Deal with it. You need help dealing with it, then you call. You call me, you call one of the elders. We will help you deal with it. We will help you. But you must deal with it. A one-woman man, verse 2. He must be a one-woman man. Beyond that, he must be temperate. Do you see that? He must be temperate. Originally, the, the word means moderate in the use of wine. He must be moderate in the use of wine. That is, that he not given to drunkenness. I think metaphorically it's speaking here in the context of sober-mindedness or sound judgment. A person who is lingers too long beside the wine bottle or other painkillers or, or, that are available in, in our society, their judgment is impaired. They're no longer sober-minded. They're no longer capable of giving sound leadership to the church of Jesus Christ. A man must be temperate, he says. Temperate. Beyond that, he must be prudent. Do you see it? He must be prudent. That must mean he, he must be thoughtful. He must be a thoughtful person. Not somebody who goes off half-cocked. You know, half the facts and boom, they're off in a snap decision. The Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 17, the first to plead his case seems just until another comes along and examines him. It means get both sides of the story, right? Don't, don't. Whatever first information you receive, don't build your judgment based on that. Wait and hear the other side of the story. Ask a few questions. Be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. It's a sign of maturity. He must be respectable. Do you see that? He must be respectable. That means well-behaved. He must be well-behaved. He must be disciplined. He must be modest. We usually think of modesty in terms of female attire but it, there's male modesty as well not just the clothes and how you dress although it's not less than that gentlemen not less than that how we dress you know we're no fool young ladies i'd say the same thing to you you're no fool you know what it looks like in the mirror and you know what it does to some of the other sides don't kid around 
You dress like you dress, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Huh? You're looking to attract a young man to you. If you're a young lady, you're looking to attract him for all the wrong reasons. Young men, the same way. Right? There's a certain way to carry yourself. And you can... Right? I used to be able to do that. Right? Wear that skin-tight T-shirt. Yeah, it's modesty in, in apparel and, and how you dress, but it's beyond that. Just modesty in how you carry yourself. You're not always out in front. You know, not the, the center of attention. It's maturity. It's what we're talking about here. It's maturity. So the first area of qualification and thus area of examination is a man's suitability, his fitness for the office of elder. Let me make one other comment as I kind of draw this down. We'll close here. Contextually, you see in verse 8, deacons. And you see it says deacons likewise. And then it goes on to list qualifications. Elders and deacons are here in the same context. And, and it's an overarching statement about both elders and deacons. There's not like two standards. right? If I want to be an elder, then I've got to live at this standard. If I want to be a deacon, it's like a half step off. That's not what it's talking about at all. All that's spoken of about elders here, with the exception of their ability to handle the word, is true of deacons as well. And that which is true of deacons is true of elders as well. These are the examinations of a man's character. Is he fit for the leadership of God's church? See, the husband of one wife, is he temperate, prudent, and respectable? Very serious areas that need to be given a close and thoughtful examination. Maybe you're here now this morning. This is the first time you've dropped in with us and you thought, man, what did I fall into? Well, God is very serious about the leadership of His church. God is a holy God. And He expects the leadership of His church to be holy men. But you know what? In God's holiness... creates a problem for you and I. The problem is that we're not. We're not holy. We don't live at the standard that God requires. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We fail at the very beginning to love Him as we ought to. The Bible calls that sin. The Bible calls it sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. Physical death, which we all experience, demonstrating that all men are sinners, as the Bible says. But it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. It's alienation, it's separation from our Creator. It's the fracturing of a relationship that was designed to be there. It's to be all alone in the world. And ultimately, when you pass from this world, it'll be to all alone in a place called hell, the lake of fire reserved for those who want no relationship with God and will have no relationship forever. It's a black place. It's a place of the gnashing of teeth. It's a place of awful torment. But the Bible says there's a way to escape hell. There's a way to reestablish a relationship with our Creator. There's a way to be made right with God. 
Not anything that you or I can do. It's, it's not by works of righteousness. It's not some good deed that we'll do. Somehow we're going to balance some great cosmic scale. It's by giving up on our own self-effort. It's by acknowledging our bankruptcy. It's by admitting that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. We have broken His law in every direction. It's an acknowledgement we deserve hell. And then it's a crying out to God to be merciful to us. It's a calling out to God to say, God, I know I deserve hell, but I, but I beg of you to be merciful to me. You see, God has extended His mercy. He extended it through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the second person of the triune Godhead, God Himself, descended to earth, took to Himself human flesh. That's what Christmas is all about, right? He walked among mankind. He lived righteously before God the Father. He walked in the power of the Spirit of God. And then, with no sin or unrighteousness found in Him, He suffered a cruel death on a Roman cross. He died as a substitute. He died in the place of sinners. That if we would, by faith, believe He died for us, if we would embrace that sacrifice by faith, if we would call out to God and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. And on the third day, He rose from the dead victorious. And if I embrace Him by faith, that I too will rise. If you will believe that. And then confess it with your mouth. That is, tell someone about that. The Bible says that you shall be saved. With the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in justification. We have a lighted cross over here. How appropriate, huh? It's empty. It's an empty cross. Christ is not there on that cross. Christ is in heaven now at the right hand of the Father. The cross is lighted because it is not shrouded in darkness. There is victory over sin. Leave the spiritual darkness. Flee to the light of the cross. After our last song here, there will be some folks that will be over in that area. They will be happy to meet with you and talk to you about what it means Come to faith in Jesus Christ to receive Him as your personal Savior and Lord too. If you feel that impulse within you pushing you in that direction, you come after the service and you'll be made right with God. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for the provision of Jesus Christ because it lifts all that we talk about outside the realm of mere human effort that the high and lofty standards of the leadership of your church are not just something that men work hard to achieve, but it is indeed a spiritual transaction whereby you take wicked and unrighteous sinners, you cleanse them through the blood of Jesus Christ, you make them your children, your spirit indwells them, and then they begin to live righteously such that they become qualified to serve in the leadership of your church. I pray, my Father, for those amongst us who desire leadership, whether it be now or in the years to come. And I pray that you would put within their hearts such a passion and desire to, to serve the church this way, to serve Christ this way, that you would enable them to make wise decisions and to say no to the things that would disqualify them. 
I pray, my Father, for those among us, male and female, caught in the ravages of sexual sin and pray that you would deliver them and that even today would be the first day that they would step into the light. I pray for those among us who do not know Christ at all and ask you to be merciful to them. Open their eyes to the truth, their ears to hear. Grant them saving faith. We pray in the name of the one who died and rose again, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.